As you, Paul introduced me, I'm Sean Farrell. I've been married to the beautiful Sue. In April this year, we celebrated our 21st wedding anniversary. So I think I got the keys to that house as well. And uh, we have three amazing children. Um, I think they might be up on the slide there at White Hart Lane, one of my favorite places. I'm a Tottenham fan and so is my son. The two of us had a little bit less hair then. Um, we've grown our hair a bit since then. The Farrell family doesn't battle with hair. But uh, Liam is in first year of varsity. He's studying uh, accounting. Caitlin's in high school at Rhenish, grade 10. And Chloe's in primary school at Rhenish, grade 5. So we've got all three spectrums of the educational system under control, I think. <laughs> in fact, I don't have a clue what's going on. Sue does all of that, and it's... Uh, only by the grace of God do we get through every single term. I'm a businessman operating in the financial services industry with uh, the Hereford and Seed Group. I've been in financial services for the last 25-odd years. I'm a qualified chartered accountant, and I moved down from Joburg. I grew up in Joburg. I was born, raised, educated, lived, careered in Joburg till I was 42. And then about eight years ago, I met the Lord on a very eventful morning, but that's a different story. Some of you have heard that story, and I'm not going to bore you with that again. I've been blessed in my career to be able to enable Sue to stay at home and uh, raise our children, and she's done a remarkable job. The first many years was largely without me. I was at work, working hard, striving for material wealth. Um, she's done an incredible job with these kids, and in the last eight years, I've really got to know and love them. And they really are my pride and joy. Each and every one of them equal, but each and every one of them different. Sue, with that spare time in later years, has done a lot of volunteer work. So this year and last year, she's been doing a lot of work for the bookery, which we support through Serve Stenemosh. Ach, not, not the bookery that was before, but this, uh, this year and last year, Calling Education. And she's, she's done incredible work and sacrificed enormous time to help on a, on a totally volunteer basis in those areas. I'm turning 50 this year, at the end of the year, and uh, the Jews hold the 50th year on earth as a, or a 50th anniversary, as quite a eventful or momentous, they call it a holy year, a jubilee, a year of jubilee, and as I sat on my rock at the end of last year, which I do, I reflect back on the year and I reflect forward into the year to come. I felt this call, this desire, this urge um, to go to Israel. I, I don't know why, I can't explain it, but I just had this sense that I needed to go to Israel and I, need, I needed to walk where Jesus walked. I needed to go to some of the places where he'd been and where he'd ministered and where his disciples ministered. As Paul said, I've only been saved eight years, so I'm still like a, a kid in a candy store or a modern kid in an app store these days. That, uh <laughs> Just can't wait to get their hands on the latest game. And um, exploring this Jesus that everybody had spoken to me about throughout my life that I hadn't accepted until, until recently, um, I needed to understand this more. And I wanted to go and see and, and figure out this calling um, that I'm feeling. So after some intervention, um, Rob and Karen... Um, pulled some strings for us with a, with, a, with a group up in Hillcrest, City Hill Church, Natal, 
we know we know none of them. Um, we managed to. Uh, the waiting list of about 20 people disappeared in two weeks, and we were on that trip. And we went in April on a on a seven-night whirlwind trip. It's a significant year in Israel this year. It's the 70th anniversary of the state of Israel being reclaimed or proclaimed again. Um, in 1948, Lord Balfour demarcated a space of land for the Jews to call their home again. Not since AD 70 when the Romans destroyed Jerusalem, flattened the temple, and chased the Jews out of that state, had the Jews had a, had a place to call home again. Our trip would largely trace the footsteps of Jesus. We started up in Nazareth, where he grew up and was raised. That's conveniently on the, very close to the, the Sea of Galilee, and we sailed across the Sea of Galilee, and we actually we reflected on that, and we sang that song, uh, He Calls Me Out Upon the Water, and it was a most incredible time for Sue and I um, on, that, on that boat, completely surrendering to, to Jesus. We spent some time on the north shore um, of, the, of that Sea of Galilee, and then we traveled down the Jordan to Jerusalem, spent four nights in Jerusalem, seeing all the significant sites most of the Christian sites, obviously, but also some of the Jewish sites. And then of the site that we all see when you see a photograph of Jerusalem, you see this gold dome, the Dome of the Rock, which is the third most revered site in the Muslim faith. But it's on this site where it is believed Abraham almost sacrificed his son Isaac before the angel of the Lord spoke to him. It's on this site where the Jews believe the tabernacle, the Holy of Holies, is buried in the rubble and destruction of the temple as it was destroyed in AD 70 by the Romans. It's not confirmed. It's, they, some believe it. Some others believe it's in Ethiopia. But there's enough, enough of the Jews that actually believe that it is under that rubble. It is on this site that the Muslims believe that Muhammad ascended into heaven. So it's an absolutely significant place for all the major faiths of the world. And so when we got back from this trip, you know, you get asked the question, give me the highlights, give me the five-minute catch-up on DSTV. I don't want to hear the whole story, just give me the highlights. I don't have time. Time is money. Um, and after a lot of reflection, um, Sue and I actually came to the conclusion there wasn't a place. It wasn't somewhere we visited. It wasn't a monastery or a church or a building or a rock that uh, many of the, of, the more, of the Catholic people would throw themselves on the ground in front of you and light candles and really prostrate themselves. It wasn't any of that. It was a feeling. It was a sense that we had. We'd spent seven nights in this secluded place that is surrounded by enemies, that have missiles pointing at every location, every significant location in this land, ready to push a button. The Iranians proclaim they would want to wipe Israel off the map. They want to chase these guys into the sea. So it's surrounded by absolute terror. Yet the sense we got was one of absolute freedom, absolute peace and absolute freedom. And I guess that came from spending a week, 24 hours a day, seven days, that entire week, focused on Jesus. Absolutely focused on Jesus. And if you 
Sue jokes with me and, and those my friends. said, if you'd seen Sean sitting on a bus singing Jerusalem with his hands in the air, you wouldn't believe it. This guy was with the happy clappies. And he was happy, clapping. We had absolute freedom, guys. And that's what I want to unpack today, this freedom we have in Christ. So I want to start with my greatest design ever. It's a horizontal line. For the academics around you, I'm going to call it a continuum. It's a fancy word for a straight line. It's impressive, eh? <laughs> it took me hours. The Holy Spirit was alive. And I want to add some sin to this. I want to mix it up a bit. So let's add some sin. Let's add insecurity on the left-hand side, and let's add pride and arrogance on the other side. This continuum, moving from in complete insecurity to complete pride and arrogance. I'm going to talk about this for the next 30-odd uh, minutes. The bad news, guys, is that each and every one of us find ourselves somewhere on this continuum. And I can see nodding heads. I know where I was. I know where I am, I think, although I don't have a clue. Only God knows where I am exactly. But I'm on there somewhere, and we're all on there somewhere. So keep this picture in the back of your heads as we progress. In order to better understand what freedom is, sometimes we have to understand what freedom isn't, bondage. So let's dig into our Bibles. And take a look at a few things. I'm going to read from John 8, 34 to 37. <clears throat> Jesus is speaking to the Jews who'd been converted and believed in him. But they were grappling with this new way. What is this that Jesus is talking to them about? And in verse 34, we pick it up. Jesus answers them. Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. The slave. So if the son sets you free, you are free indeed. I know that you are offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. These Jews have just been told by Jesus that they are sinners. And not only are they sinners, they are captured captive by their sin, and they're therefore no longer acceptable to God. They are countering Jesus. We are the sons and daughters of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We have this promise, this free gift. We are chosen and set apart. Sin does not affect us like it affects the Gentiles and the unclean. We have 613 commandments and rules and regulations around how we are to live our lives to be acceptable to God sacrifices and festivals and, and the like. What are you talking about? What's even more astounding to these people, Jesus is not only calling them sinners, but he's telling them to abandon this rule book, these 613 commandments and instructions, most, many of which are found in the Torah the, and, and, and in the, obviously in the Old Testament, those first five books of the Old Testament. They must abandon this rule book and simply put their faith in him to achieve this total salvation. Nothing more and nothing less. And not only must they put their faith in him, they must love this God with all their heart, soul, and mind. And they must love their neighbor as themselves. 
Jew and Gentile, that also blew them. Gentiles were the unclean, the untouchable. They were not to associate themselves with them in any way. They were a secluded and chosen group. They weren't, weren't to even touch them. These Gentiles, their men were uncircumcised. Good heavens. They, they ate their meat with blood in it, and they committed all manner of sexual perversions, one of which is the marrying of their cousins, which was quite a strange thing. They could not get, a, get their heads around that Jesus was offering these non-Jews the same salvation and favor in God's world, in God's mind, as they had as the sons and daughters of Abraham. But I think the worst thing that Jesus was doing was he was committing blasphemy. He was claiming to be the Messiah. For centuries and centuries, the Jews had been taught about this Messiah. There had been prophecy upon prophecy about the coming of the Messiah and what this Messiah looked, looked like. In their minds, this Messiah was a new kind of king, a vanquisher of the oppressed, a ruler, somebody famous um, and big and bold, a mighty man of provision. Yet this ragamuffin fellow who hung around with tax collectors and prostitutes and befriended fishermen and probably was a little bit smelly, he was claiming to be the Messiah. This was too much for these guys. So when Jesus said, as we read in, in John 8, when Jesus said, my words find no place in you. It is from this premise, these teachings that these guys had had over all the centuries that had been passed down from generation to generation. They could not see the Messiah standing before them, and they could not accept him. So what was the obvious response of the Jewish religious leaders of the time? The obvious response was, we need to get rid of this guy. He's not going away, so we need to kill him. We need to put an end to these disruptive teachings. So where do you think these Jewish leaders sat on that continuum of pride and arrogance? Pride? Absolutely. Their faith was crucial to their lives. It was all they stood for. They had an inheritance and legacy that Abraham had passed down from a message from God. They had this rule book, the Torah. No one was to mock it or ridicule it or cast dispersions on it, or offer salvation to anyone else other than them. They were enormously prideful around their faith. They were insecure. Absolutely, it's less obvious, but when you think about it, Jesus' claim to be the Messiah was, was the ultimate blasphemy in their mind. They, yet they'd seen all, many of them had seen a lot of the miracles that... Uh, that he committed. So there must have been a lot of doubt and suspicion behind those closed doors of their meetings. They'd been praying for centuries for this Messiah, yet they couldn't accept it and they couldn't see it. They'd spent every waking life studying those commandments, those rules, memorizing them, trying to live by them, and they were being told to throw it away. They would lose their jobs. The teachings that they passed on to the next generation, the young little Jewish boys that attended their bar mitzvahs and then committed themselves, they wouldn't have a job anymore. They were deeply insecure. And lastly, I think many of the, 
there were many Jews defecting. There was a split coming in their, in their nation, in their population. Many Jews were accepting Christ and being converted. And this, this closed little group was starting to split because of this man Jesus and his teachings. I've got ten friends that they were acting on both extremes of this continuum of extreme pride and extreme insecurity. To decide then to crucify Jesus was the ultimate consequence of their pride and insecurity, is to actually follow through and kill this man. I want to share a picture. It's quite difficult to see, but when we were at the Western Wall, um, which is the western boundary of the Temple Mount, um, so the western edge of where that gold dome is, and these Jews believe that behind that western wall is the tabernacle, the Holy of Holies, the place where they come to see God and be with God. The rabbis have their station on the side and people come and they, they come to pray. And those less advanced or less knowledge come and get a, get a book, they come and get scripture, and they come and get a rubber band. And what they do, just, I'm not mocking this in any way, I'm just pointing out something, and it's something that really struck me and it's, and it's very clear. But they then take this rubber band and they strap it around their arm, and I'm not sure if you can see it, it's not that clear because of the distance, but those, those are so, sort of civilians, Jews, coming to the, this place with the rabbis, taking this band and they strap, strap it around their arm and they strap it tight. So there's no blood flow in their arm, in their left arm. And then they take the scripture that they're going to memorize for the day and they put it in this little box and they strap this box around their head and on their forehead. Now the idea of the band is to stop the blood in their arms. They don't leak that blood out of their bodies. So by definition then, the blood that was in the arm is now in the rest of the body and in the heart and the head is where they want extra blood flow. So it helps them with the memorization. It helps them with all of this kind of stuff. And as I was watching this transpire, these two guys that come up there have also got semi-automatic rifles hanging on their shoulders. They're obviously civilian um, security. You see them all around. And that's why you feel incredibly safe, because you know somebody's not going to cause any nonsense, because these acts are all around. But the irony of this is that these guys, bound and strapped and harnessed, are going to go and sit at this wall and meditate and pray on these scriptures, on these rules, on these things that they need to learn off by heart to make them better people for God. And what struck me here is that this is bondage. This is extreme bondage, friend. There's no freedom in this. There's no joy in their hearts. There's no love or happiness. You see the misery. You see the unhappiness. You can touch it. As I stood by that wall praying, I could touch the unhappiness around me. The men are on the one side, and then there's this massive partition on the women on the other side. I could not pray with Sue there. I could not touch Sue there. That was... I, almost, I put my arm around her to take a selfie and nearly got arrested. Because this is not how we're supposed to live. Eh? This is not how God or Jesus designed us to live. And I contend that the, the insecure and prideful decision of the rulers of the day of Jesus 
have perpetuated this bondage, this total lack of freedom. So let's get back to this continuum, and let's add a few names. I'm going to add the, the fancy words for the Jewish religious leaders of the time, the Sanhedrin, the Pharisees, the Sadducees. These were the guys that were, were studying and had studied the, the Torah and, and the rule book, and they were taking it forward from generation to generation. And I'm, I'm going to put them under the insecurity and the pride and arrogance pillars. Now, Jesus was a man. He came to earth as God. God came to earth as Jesus. So Jesus must fit on this continuum somewhere. And I'm going to put him right in the middle. I'm going to put him, he's perfect. He's God. No one can come close to him. He's the absolute perfect balance of security and humility. As you move from insecurity, you become secure. As you move from pride and arrogance, you become humble. And Jesus is the absolute epitome of security and humility. The crucial ingredients for a leader or a man that people will follow and sacrifice their lives and martyr themselves for requires these traits of security and humility. It takes a lot in our lives as parents to be able to admit to your kids that you've made a mistake. You let them down. You punished them when you shouldn't have punished them. You gave them a hiding when you shouldn't have given them a hiding before Christ. You scolded them when you shouldn't have. When you didn't scold them and you should have. It takes humility to be able to do that. And it takes security knowing that they're not going to mock or ridicule or think less of you as a parent because you actually hum humbled yourselves to say sorry. I think that is the most unused word in our world today. Sorry. Next time somebody's arguing with you or picking a fight with them, with you, be the first to say sorry and see what happens. It is remarkable, friends. So as we traveled through Israel, following Jesus' footsteps, we obviously spent quite some time understanding some of the disciples. And the one that stuck out for me was Peter. Peter's original name was Simon, and at some point Jesus renamed him Peter, which means the rock. He was a Galilean fisherman, and in those days, fishermen were rough and tough. They were the roughest and toughest of the rough and tough. They didn't have fancy motors on the back of their boats. They didn't have hydraulic systems to haul in their nets. They had to row their boats through the surf. They had to haul out the nets by hand, full of fish. I don't know when last any of you have ever tried to do that. Some of us struggle with a fishing rod trying to haul that fish in. Can you imagine these guys hauling nets, not made of the finest nylon with 200 kilogram breaking strengths, etc., etc. These guys were tough. So you can imagine, pretty tough guys are usually pretty arrogant guys. Yeah? Met a few of those in my life. And pretty arrogant guys are often, when you get to know them, deeply insecure. Something happened in their life long ago that made them insecure. And the way they've dealt with this insecurity is to become the toughest oak. That anybody questions them or looks at them skew, they blicks on them. Met a few of those guys in my life. I reckon Peter was no different. 
I think he was no different. He'd spent three years walking with his Jesus after abandoning his fishing practice. And he got first-hand experience of our mighty God in action. So as we sailed across the Sea of Galilee, Sue and I, and we were on this boat, our pastor read and we sang and we meditated on this Peter walking on water. So we pick it up in Matthew 14, 25 to 33. We read, And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, It's a ghost. And they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them saying, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. And Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. Jesus said, come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying to him, Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased. And those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. Did you see that? Did you see that? It's recorded that this man, Peter, walked on water. He was brave enough to actually get out of the boat. Some could say he was arrogant. Who is that arrogant Peter again going and getting out of the boat? Why don't we just stay here and in our comfort and wait for the wind to die down? He was fine while he looked at Jesus and focused on Jesus. He was able to make his way across the water. But as soon as he looked away, as soon as he looked left or right to the wind, to the waves, or down to the water, he began to sink. He was insecure in that moment. And as he began to sink, Jesus put out his hand and pulled him up and rescued him. But at the same time, rebuking him, questioning him as to his doubt and his lack of faith. In this scene, Peter not only acts bravely, some could say arrogantly, but he flips across to insecurity in an instant. And that instant is as he takes his eyes off Jesus. When Jesus was betrayed by Judas the night of his arrest, it was Peter who stepped forward and chopped off the ear of the priest's servant. Surrounded by guards and so many Wanting to capture Jesus, he unthinkingly put his very life and those of those around him at risk. Again, Jesus rebukes him and heals that servant's ear, probably preventing a mass slaughter of all the disciples at the time. You can imagine if he, Jesus hadn't healed this guy's ear, there would have been a proper Barney. But as Jesus healed the ear of the priest's servants, I'm pretty sure he cast more, more doubt and suspicion amongst those Jewish rulers that were there that I spoke about earlier. Their suspicion, their insecurity. That, mm, could this be the Messiah? We're not sure. Let's kill him. So Peter goes from this courageous act of bravado where he risks the life, the very life of those of his close friends 
to later that night denying Jesus three times. In Mark 14, 30 to 31, we read, And Jesus said to him, Truly I tell you, this very night, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But Peter said emphatically, If I must die with you, I will not deny you. A brave, bold, and proud statement full of arrogance said in the heat of the moment to the man himself. But as we know, through the night, Peter gets confronted three times by a servant girl and bystanders. All three times Peter denies knowing Jesus or being part of his group or even being Galilean. This rough and tough guy who'd walked on water, who'd lived with Jesus for three years and witnessed every single miracle, or not every single, but many, many miracles that he'd performed, denied Jesus when the chips were down. I think he was pretty insecure at that point. He was fearing for his safety and he was insecure. But when he committed the third denial and the rooster crowed and he heard the crow of the rooster, it's recorded that he broke down and wept. Friends, can you see where Peter fits on this continuum? Both on the insecurity side, as he looked away from Jesus while he was walking on water, as he denied Jesus, not to the priests or the soldiers or He denied Jesus to the the servants and the bystanders, not to anyone who could do him any harm. I'm pretty sure Peter sits on both sides as well. Fortunately, the story doesn't end there. I'd imagine that after that, when he broke down and wept, he spent some time reflecting on Jesus' prophecy over him. Jesus had prophesied that he was going to deny him three times before he did. I think he spent some serious time trying to figure out what had gone, gone wrong there. And he had three choices. He could abandon this last three years and just write it off as a crazy and strange experience and go back to being a fisherman where... The fish were caught and those around took instruction from him and didn't argue with him because he was a mean guy. He could have done himself in like Judas did. After Judas denied Jesus, he couldn't live with himself anymore. And he went off and some time later killed himself. Peter could have chosen that route as well. But he chose the third option, friends. He chose the route of focusing on Christ on focusing on this Messiah that he'd spent so much time with. He'd learned serious lessons. He was humbled and he was enormously strengthened by the pain and suffering of what he'd just gone through. So he returned with some of his disciples to the shores of Galilee. And in John 21, we read how Jesus, who's supposed to be dead, that crucified him, appears again to them. Peter and his mates had decided to go fishing that night and they'd spent the whole night fishing and they'd caught nothing. And as they returned to shore in the morning, they saw this man standing on the banks 
of the of the sea of, of the Galilee. They at first didn't recognize him. And then this man said to them, Peter and his buddies, cast your nets out again on the right hand side. Now you must think, guys, there's no hydraulic system. They'd pull these nets in time and time again through the night. They'd caught nothing. They packed it all up and they decided to head for home. They were looking forward to putting ashore, making a fire and having some breakfast and resting and maybe getting some sleep. And here's this fellow saying, cast your net out again. I'd imagine they took some convincing, but they did. And they cast their net out on the right-hand side again. And it's recorded that it was so heavy with fish, they could not haul it in. And it was at that moment they recognized that this man standing there amongst on the banks was Jesus himself. And after breakfast, Jesus and Peter had some time alone. And we read in John 21, 15 to 17. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And he responded saying, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said to him, tend my sheep. Jesus said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved this time because to him it was the third time. Do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And Jesus said, feed my sheep. There was no accident that Jesus asked Peter three times. Peter denied Jesus three times the night he was arrested. And Jesus was testing Peter three times around his love. And as we read there, Peter was grieved. He knew what Jesus had just done. He knew the significance of the third request, do you love me? And he was grieved. But in that grieving, he was strengthened. On the northern banks of the Sea of Galilee, we find a couple, we find a few places celebrating Peter's life. And here there's a, there's a statue of Jesus with his hand out over Peter and the plaque at the bottom says, feed my sheep. My sheep friends are not the literal sheep. The sheep are his people. The people that have put their love and hope in Jesus Christ are his sheep. There's a little church built around the rock. As I said, there's lots of rocks and there's lots of stuff there in Israel. But there's this little church on the banks of the, of the sea built around this rock where this, they believe this interaction took place. After the trials and tribulations Peter had gone through, Jesus knew he could trust this Peter now. He could trust Peter to take the gospel to where it needed to go to preach the new way of Christ. Peter had been properly humbled, and his security was now fully in Jesus. Through Jesus, he had conquered his sin of pride and insecurity. He was free indeed. This is a great truth for us to remember, friends. Our sins may not be pride and insecurity. There might be other stuff. There might be something different. You put, you put the ends of the continuum together in your own life. But through our trials and tribulations, God is going to be working on our dependence on Him. 
Peter then returns to Jerusalem to join the other disciples for the Feast of Weeks. It's about, well, it is 50 days post Christ's resurrection and the disciples are gathered in the upper room. Got together and they're chatting. This day was to become known as the day of Pentecost. In Acts 2, verse 1 to 13, and I'm not going to read it all, but Luke describes how the Holy Spirit comes upon the disciples, like tongues of fire above their heads. They began to speak languages, foreign languages. This was a festival time in Jerusalem, and people from many countries and outlying areas had all come to Jerusalem to celebrate this festival. So there were people of different languages and different dialects, which many couldn't understand. If you, did, if you didn't understand your dialect, that was it. Other people's dialect, that was it. You couldn't communicate. And suddenly these disciples were speaking these languages. They were speaking in tongues. They were babbling and going on. And some of the Jews that were there and witnessed this mocked them and said they were full of wine. They were drunk. They had too much wine. It was then that Peter stood up. And not this time he didn't draw a sword to attack these mockers. He didn't deny Jesus to these mockers. He stood there and he proclaimed Christ. He gave them a history lesson, and you can read this preach, one of the most significant preachers that we have in our in our Bible, the first preach of Peter, the first preach recorded in the Bible of a man filled with the Holy Spirit. And he declared Jesus the Messiah to these guys. He rebuked them. And he stood there with absolute humble security, proclaiming Christ. And we read in Acts 2, verse 40, towards the end of this proclamation. And with many other words he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this wicked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. I think these words would ring true today if somebody stood there and said, save yourselves from this wicked generation. I don't think the world has changed. I think the wickedness is just different. Could this be why Jesus named Simon Peter, the rock? By focusing entirely on Jesus, Peter had gone from a rough and tough fisherman, vacillating from pride and insecurity, to being a pivotal, to being a pivotal apostle of the Christian church. His conviction and authenticity came from a personal life of struggle. But when he focused on Jesus, he was used by God to change the hearts and lives and souls of an untold number. So let's get back to our picture, and I want to add some arrows this time. Arrows of Peter. And we saw how Peter, when he focused on Jesus, he was fine. I want to also put our names up on the slide now. You and me. we just like Peter. Somewhere on this continuum we are. But friends, it's not where we are on the continuum that is the issue. It's the direction we are moving that is so important. Just as with Peter, we all have a story. We all have hardships. We all have broken relationships or abuse. 
or family struggle or financial difficulties or victimization or whatever it is. We all have reasons to be insecure. Some of us have reasons to be proud. We've had an easy life. Things come easy to us. We straight our students. It's easy. What's your problem, Christians? Why are you hanging on to this Jesus? We all have reasons to be proud. Our life story shapes where we are on the continuum. But it's a decision we make as to which direction we are heading. Don't let the past define the direction, friends. By focusing on Christ, we are moving towards the center. We are moving towards a life of less insecurity, more security. A life of less pride, less arrogance, more humility. And I believe that's where Jesus wants us. That's where God wants us. That's where the world needs us. The world doesn't need more Donald Trumps. Okay? It doesn't. Trust me. I work in the investment world. Jesus is our Savior. He has given us the free gift of salvation. He is drawn across through our sins, friends. We don't have to do anything. We don't have to learn rules and regulations and sacrificial systems to obtain this gift of salvation, this absolute freedom that exists in Christ. He's done it for us. So let's move towards him. And as we move towards him, people say, well, how do you move towards this Jesus? In my life, I read the Bible. That's the first place to do it. Read the Bible and be humbled, friends. Serve in your community. Give rather than take. Join a life group. There's many of those. Bible studies. If you need help wanting to know how to get closer to this man, Jesus, speak to me or speak to the elders of the church, any one of the deacons. There's a lot of us that can help you and point you to things that bring you absolute freedom and joy in serving Christ and doing what he's called us to do. Just as Jesus forgave Peter's sins, and the ultimate sin being denial, so too he's forgiven our sins. There is no sin too great for Jesus to forgive. All we have to do is put our faith in him. So, as we move towards the center, we find our freedom. It's not complicated, guys. It's not a strange set of rules or sacrificial system. We are set free from our pride and from our insecurities and Christ will ultimately bring us the freedom we desire. I guess most of us in the hall today have made that decision. Most of us have taken that step of faith to say Jesus is our Lord and Savior. But there may be some of you here that haven't. Friends, come and speak to Paul or myself or any of the other elders. We'll be up here afterwards and we can tell you a bit more about this amazing man, this God that we serve. That freedom is within our grasp. It's just a decision of faith that we need to take. I've used two examples, insecurity and pride. The one sits strongly on my shoulders. There's no prizes for guessing which one. 
And it's a constant battle, friends. It's a constant battle every day to turn away from our sin and to focus on Jesus, to humble myself daily, especially in the world that we live in. But as that battle progresses, it gets easier. You're able to release easier and start to do what God wants you to do, not what you want to do. So friends, as Jesus said to the Jews almost 2,000 years ago, so if the Son sets you free, you are free indeed. Let us pray. Father God, we thank you that you came to earth as man. That you came to earth to experience the struggles firsthand of what we live on a daily basis. To experience pride, arrogance, insecurity, countless sins, Lord. I thank you for coming and setting us free. Setting us free from all of these things, Lord, through nothing that we can do. We cannot strive for this. We cannot work for this. You've given it to us freely, Lord, as a true and amazing gift. Father, I pray that for those of us that are battling whatever it is, we're all battling with something, Father. I pray that you will give each and every one of us fresh desire to wage war on that sin, a fresh desire to hunger for you more, Father, a fresh desire to seek you in every single thing we do, every waking life, moments of our lives. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you for all that you have done for us and all that you mean to us. We pray this in your mighty name. Amen.